I'm excited for this episode. I have somebody that I have so much respect for. I'm so glad this has been a long time coming. Her name is Primrose, but I'm going to let her tell us a little bit about herself. Sure. Hey, Queens, and thank you so much to you, Jay, for inviting me to be your guest today. My name is Primrose Igonor. I was born in Uganda, grew up in South Africa, and I've had the privilege of living around the world. So I have lived in Singapore, United Arab Emirates, England, Canada, and the United States. I am married. My husband is Nigerian, and we have two wonderful sons. My oldest is Oshoke Justin or OJ, he's 21. And my youngest is Atwine Jason, and he's 15. Uh, professionally, I qualified as a clinical psychologist in South Africa in 1996. And I have worked in that area in different capacities the world over. I love that. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. One I've been waiting to have for for a long time. I guess my first question is tell me about your education journey and how you came to become a clinical psychologist. Sure. So like I had said to you earlier, I uh, did all my studies in South Africa. Mm. I In South Africa, the, the, the system is a bit different. So you do your first degree. So my first degree was a BA. I majored in psychology and English language and linguistics. And then we have what we call an honors degree, which is a one-year degree. And that I received a B social science honors in psychology. And then finally, I did my master's, which takes two years. And that was in clinical psychology. It's interesting that we talk about studying. What, the, what does that look like? So South Africa is a predominantly black country. It mm-hmm. is in Africa. But we have a lot, especially in South Africa, when the Dutch came to colonize and even the English, mm-hmm. they started to have the power. And so psychology was really reserved for white people. Mm-hmm. And so in my class of 15, I remember myself another black lady, and then what we call a colored lady who happened to be Muslim out of a class of 15 in South Africa, which is located in Africa. So a lot has been done to change that narrative uh, because if we need psychologists to work with the population, which is mostly black, then we need to have more black psychologists. Mm -hmm. So that was an observation that we saw way back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know where we're at now, but I, I have the feeling because Nelson Mandela was very passionate about this, that when he was a president, that that was something that they worked on. But I'd have to look up uh, stats on the Internet or Google to, to find out how what that looks like now. OK, OK. Now, were you in South Africa before Nelson Mandela became president? Yes. What was that like? Like, you know, we we only know for for those of us who were on the outside, at mm-hmm. least for me, I wasn't really, I think I was born, like I wasn't that old, but I obviously I watched like Sarafina, I watched a lot of documentaries. And to be honest, it looked treacherous. I, I recently reread uh, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my goodness, I, I couldn't. And then I also just finished reading a book by this tennis player who grew up in apartheid South Africa. I think mm-hmm. I can't remember his name right now, but he, he talks about even something as simple as leaving your house to to go 
I don't know, you had to have like a card and you, if you were, if you weren't from that clan, you couldn't go to the other side of that neighborhood. Uh-huh. Are these experiences that you had to deal with as well before um, Nelson Mandela came on? And when Nelson Mandela came on, did every, because it made it seem as though everything was, you know, fixed. But tell me how that transition was for you. Yeah, so this is a question I always get mm-hmm. because having been born in Uganda, why would my dad move his family to South Africa mm-hmm. during apartheid? But what a lot of people don't realize is that within South Africa in those days, they had what they called homelands. And mm-hmm. homelands were self-governing countries, self-governed by black people. So we ended up going to Transkei. Mm-hmm. And because my dad was an expatriate, you know, working in the medical field, we ended up going to school with other expatriates. We also ended up going uh, expatriates children. We also ended up going to school with white people who had left South Africa, either because they didn't agree with apartheid. Apartheid means separation, separation of the races, mm-hmm. or because they were paid almost double their salary to go and work in the homelands and help improve them. Mm. And so we ended up going to school with white kids. And kids from China and India, because there was a lot of expatriates. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in that process, we did not experience racism and discrimination. And yet we were a country within South Africa. So Mm -hmm. all our teachers were white. Our principal was white. We went to uh, dances with white kids. We had sleepovers, our best friends. Some of us dated white people. And it was this oasis within South Africa. The funny thing, though, is anytime we went on vacation, so South Africa was more developed than the homelands. So everybody wanted to go on vacation into South Africa because that's where they had all the rides and the movies and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And once we crossed over the border, then we were treated as subpar. We could not stay in any hotel. We could only stay in an international hotel. So we always stayed at the Holiday Inn. Mm -hmm. When we went to the beach, they had a white beach a black beach, a colored beach, and a Indian beach. And presumably, mm-hmm. or as you can well imagine, the white beach was perfect. Perfect mm-hmm. sand, clear waters. The black beach was the worst. That's where you had all the pebbles, wasn't really clean. And so that's when we felt the effects of apartheid. But then we'd go back home to our oasis and everything was back to normal for us. So that was our experience. Oh, wow. I've never, I didn't know that there was such a thing. Now, mm-hmm. as a child, when you're trying to process, because this is, what are you, te- what conversations are you having with yourself? You, you're coming from the oasis where everything seems regular and normal, mm-hmm. only to land in a place where people are like, ew, no, you can go over there. That's a great question. So I think because we were kids, Mm-hmm. We didn't really think much about it. Mm-hmm. And it's sad to say that we were in an environment that was Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. And because all our teachers were white, our principals were white, our coaches were white, mm-hmm. we, in a way, felt like we were white. And so everybody was nice to us, so we didn't question anything. But when mm-hmm. we now went to university... Mm-hmm. And we were exposed to people that were different from us and had had different experiences. 
that's when we we realized that there's something very wrong going on. Also, these South Af- uh, these universities that I attended were in South Africa. Oh, okay. okay. Right. And so, so, for instance, I went to Rhodes University. I was there from ninety one to ninety three. That was pre. Uh, that was apartheid mm-hmm. time. So that was really very political. Mm-hmm. I suddenly became radical. I joined black organizations, this and that. Mm-hmm. But then in 1994 is when Madiba, Nelson Mandela, became president. Mm-hmm. And that's when things started to change. There was more of a leveling out. There was more opportunities for black, uh, black people. Mm-hmm. So that was now what we call post-apartheid, which we're still currently in. Mm-hmm. But definitely a much better experience. Did like that? That is so. Weren't you scared? Like when it was time to go to university, and then you know you you're like, okay, now I'm going into South Africa. Were you not terrified about you know what that would that would that experience would have been like? No, because again, we were children. Mm-hmm. We could stay in the. Holiday Inn, which was at that point a really fancy uh, uh, a hotel, mm-hmm. and we would go on the rides, and it was just the fun of you know we're road tripping. We didn't really think about it. Mm-hmm. It's only when we got older that we started, and I think to a, a large degree, our parents probably wanted to protect us. Mm-hmm. They knew they had brought us all the way from Uganda, and they wanted a better life for us. So why bring up this whole thing about discrimination and all that? So they never really talked to us about it. I yeah. think also because they are Ugandan, they didn't really want to get into the politics of that. It's us children who are now bicultural, if I can use that term, mm-hmm. that really got to understand the, the culture. Because now we were going to school with black kids from South Africa and making friends with them and listening to their conversations in their homes. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we got a lot of our understanding of things. But at the same time, those black kids were kids of wealthy people in Transkei. So again, that whole narrative of, wow, they're in a white school. This is going to be good for them. And you guys try and be as, uh, as good as white people, you know, live your life like a white person. So you're different. Mm. That's kind of the messaging that we got when we were at school. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think I had something similar. Uh, Not quite the same, like growing up in Uganda. My parents were always like, you know, you you have to behave proper. Don't be like, you know, don't be like too... Like there's a there's a thing in Uganda like don't be so local. You need right. to show that you're modern and and all that stuff. And at that age, I didn't really understand what it what they were talking about. But as I of course as I've gone older, it's like you know be closest to white as you can so that you can right. the world life can be easier for you. Absolutely. In a way, like trauma parenting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I I can't blame them. Mm-hmm. They thought they were doing the right thing. I remember, for instance, we moved to South Africa and we were christened with Uganda names. Mm-hmm. And the white teacher said we can't pronounce those names. So we suddenly had to use Primrose and Philip and Peace. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, my parents regret that because my Uganda name is so basic, three syllables, Kentwiga. Mm-hmm. 
And so what was difficult about pronouncing that? They also decided because they were of two different languages to bring us up speaking English. They mm -hmm. said, you know, now we've moved to South Africa, we're two different languages, we don't want to confuse these kids, so let's just speak English. And again, in retrospect, they regret that. Mm -hmm. But we don't blame them. We, we understand they thought they were doing what was best. Hence, when you, ask, when you asked me to introduce myself, I gave you my son's names. Mm -hmm. And I talked about Oshoke, Justin. So the African name comes first. And Atwine, Jason. Mm -hmm. So we can change a narrative. We yeah. can always do better. I'm curious, you know... We've we've heard I don't and I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard this a lot that there's not a lot of diversity in academia and it's hard for I've heard a lot of black women say that, you know, especially once you get to, you know, your parents are OK, you know, once you get your degree. But when you start getting into your master's, then the culture piece starts becoming an, an issue or oh, you don't want to get too educated for a man or, you know, don't spend too much time going to school so that you won't get married. I'm curious if you ever had to deal with stuff like that. Yes. So I, I alluded to that earlier. Definitely with regards to my clinical psychology experience at the master's level. Mm -hmm. But because my parents were highly educated and they moved to South Africa for a better opportunity for their kids, mm -hmm. it was just automatic that after school, you go straight to university. There's nothing about, oh, you're a girl, uh, be looking for a husband, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And once you're done with your first degree, yeah, you, but we need to do our honors. And actually, we want you guys to do your master's degrees before you settle down. You need to be able to take care of yourself in case you don't get married, in case you get divorced, whatever the case might be. So in that way, my parents were very forward thinking mm -hmm. uh, to even think that in the 60s when they met, mm -hmm. my dad married somebody very different from his own culture. So my dad is Munyankole, mm -hmm. my mom is Acholi. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine with tribalism in those days, for him mm -hmm. to have done that, again, a person way before his time. For him to have left Uganda as a doctor, uh, even at the time when at some point, actually Museveni, President Museveni of Uganda had actually wanted my dad to return and said, I'll pay you handsomely. You know, you can come have a good time here. We need your expertise. But for him to have said, you know what, I, I want to work here. A lot of my cousins actually during that time of Idi Amin mm -hmm. left and went to England. Mm -hmm. uh, and my dad specifically said, I want to use my skills in Africa. Mm. And so that has been a huge influence in my own life. Mm -hmm. So as a medical doctor, he ended up becoming uh, a prof at a university, in a medical uh, university. And when he eventually retired, he got a plaque from former students. I mean, he had seen so many black doctors mm -hmm. uh, through his courses. And the plaque said something like, because of you, you have given us a future. Yeah. I so you have trained us to be doctors. We have a better life and we can take care of our families, but now we can also give back. 
Mm-hmm. So my parents, I think, were very forward-thinking, and for that, I'm grateful. Yeah, it's it's definitely different from from what I've I've heard. Tell me about like in the classroom. You mentioned that you you started to notice that there was a shift in how people were either treating you or you know there was just there was just a difference and so i know for myself in in the in the classroom in my program when there's a lot of white students mm-hmm. because it's social work and it's like quote unquote a safe space mm-hmm. there was a lot of time where there was a like it felt it felt like I was sinking because they would they, they would literally say like racist things and then they're like, but it's a safe space. Right. <laughs> you, you couldn't say anything. As I as I continued into the program, like it became more diverse, but it was really hard to be in the classroom with, you know, with white students because they felt like they could like because it's social work, they could just show up to class and just dump all their racist ideologies. I'm curious if that's something that you especially in in a place like south africa where i i mean i'm assuming it's not like here where you can write to the dean and and be like hey this person is 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 a racist and and things like that how did you manage that if you ever had to deal with it so again because we grew up primarily with white kids mm-hmm. that gave us some experience but i will say it was a shock to the system when we got into South African universities mm-hmm. and met white people who had never interacted with black people. And mm-hmm. so despite us trying to be like them and actually being like them, you're still a black person. Yeah. And it was really a very pivotal moment to realize that this oasis and this protected bubble that we grew up in was burst. Mm-hmm. And I remember a lot of black students going on strike in South Africa. We call it itoi toi, mm-hmm. and you're coming and you're singing and you're acting like you're soldiers. Mm-hmm. And so these black kids coming to our classroom and toy toying and trying to disrupt the class, mm-hmm. and me sitting in the class and thinking, "Do I join them? I know some of these people, but mm-hmm. would my parents be okay with me toy toying?" After, you know, making sure that I'm at university, paying for it, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So it was really very challenging. But eventually I found myself, I found my voice and I now had black friends Mm -hmm. of all different types who schooled me on apartheid and their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so it, it took a while, but eventually I crossed over to the other side, as it were. And, you know, when you were interacting with other Black people, was there any sense of, because, um, you know, th- there was a time, and I'm I'm sure it's still going on now, but there was a time in the news where there mm-hmm. was a lot of coverage around xenophobia in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you dealt with, like, even though you were interacting with other Black students, that they were like, oh, but you know, you're not part of us or because I know some a lot of black yeah. children, a lot of black people deal with when you put up your hand in class a lot or you're trying to be white or they kind of alienate you because you're not, quote unquote, that stereotypical black person. Yeah. So that experience. Yeah, I would say our parents faced xenophobia more than we did mm. because we were children we got to interact with, yes, it was wealthy black kids, 
-hmm. But through them, we started to pick up the language. We started to pick up the habits, the mannerisms. Mm -hmm. And so we as children did not really experience that xenophobia. And as a result, anybody will tell you, I consider myself South African versus Ugandan. Mm -hmm. Because I lived in Uganda for nine years, mm -hmm. from birth to nine. And I lived in South Africa for 20 years before I left in, 19, in 2000. Mm -hmm. So that's xenophobia. Definitely more recent immigrants, whether young or older, uh, have faced that. It was more our parents that would talk about, you know, experiencing xenophobia in the workplace and things like that. When you got older and... You know, because I'm, I'm assuming your parents, n not just, you know, the trauma of, of course, leaving Uganda, but also like all, like even my parents living through Idi Amin. Mm -hmm. And did you, is that a conversation you ever had? Because like how they dealt with that, that trauma of like leaving a war-torn country, if it were, or leaving like chaos, I should say, mm -hmm. and then having to just, leave and just say you know what let me pack up and go and a lot of Ugandan parents like let's face it they don't talk about these things have you ever had a conversation with any of your parents just to see like how they how did they deal with it yeah again that only came when we were older mm -hmm. I think they really wanted us to be safe mm -hmm. and okay mm -hmm. and they brought us to this new environment we have a future you know, because Uganda was so volatile. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really talk to us about that. Yeah. What they did do, though, is they talked to us a lot about our family, extended family. They ensured that we went on vacation to Uganda every two to three years mm -hmm. so that we knew our cousins, our uncles, our aunts. But they never really talked about the political situation mm -hmm. until we were older. Yeah, and did you, when you got older... Did they ever have an outlet? Did they ever have, did you find that they had someone to talk to or did they just kind of like a lot of, you know, a lot of parents during that time just kind of just got through it? Oh, they certainly had an outlet because mind you, we were not the only Ugandan family. Mm. So there was a lot of Ugandans who had moved there and we formed a community. Okay. And so in those communities, when we had parties and social events, you'd hear about the politics and people's experiences. Mm. That's kind of what parents did. Okay, good. So, At least yeah. You studied psychology and, you know, psychology and, you know, like social work is not something we really talk about in Africa. What really led you to, I know, it, was it because you went to a, a predominantly white school that you considered psychology or was there something that drove you to want to study that? So I wanted to be a journalist because especially once I got to university, it was this whole thing of, I want to change the narrative. I wanted people to see and hear the truth. And I was gung-ho about that. I got into journ school, mm -hmm. but I was very disappointed because I thought I could write what I like. I don't know if you've heard of the book that Steve Biko uh, penned, mm -hmm. title, I Write What I Like. So I thought I was going to be like Steve Biko. Mm -hmm. But journalism, like in life, many aspects of life, there's a formula. They mm -hmm. talk about the upside down triangle and this is how you write. So I thought, eh, nah. And I happened to enjoy psychology because that was just a course that was one of the courses I was doing. And then come to find out later when mm -hmm. we went on vacation to Uganda 
that my mom had actually wanted to be a psychologist in the 70s mm. was offered a full ride scholarship to the US mm. but my dad discouraged her and said ah what is this psychology ugandan psychology and he was right i guess why yeah. don't you become a teacher so she ended up becoming a teacher yeah so for me to become a psychologist his past she's it's coming in 5 years ever since i've been a psychologist ever since i've been a student of psychology because i love my mom a lot mm-hmm. i did that for her yeah so that's that's how it up there did you ever so when you were done university in south africa your did you ever practice being a psychologist in south africa Oh yes, I did. So I worked uh, at a community health services for a year, mm-hmm. and I also was a lecturer at a university. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, the university is called University of Fortaire. It's a historically black university. It's a university Mandela attended, one of the universities. Mm-hmm. So I was a lecturer there for two and a half years. Uh, I also ran a private practice on the side, mm-hmm. and uh, all that. stopped once we left South Africa in 2000. What was it like you were were you working with with black people because I know I know in Canada like therapy is inherently inaccessible particularly for uh communities of color. Mhm. Did you were you able to work with with black people while you were there? Uh yes, in the community health services because that clinic was for people in the community. Mm-hmm. people could not afford uh services. Mm, okay. So got We to need work something with like that in Uganda, jeez. Right, right. Yeah, so that was specifically for, you know, people maybe who couldn't access the hospital because of transportation. So mm-hmm. you want to be in the community where you're easily more easily accessible. And was that something that you did intentionally? No, I just happened to get a job there. Oh. So Yeah, I just that just happened to be my first job. So I applied for a number of jobs and that's the one I chose. Mm. And I, I guess that says a lot because I was only there for one year. Yeah. And a psychologist that I admire that was my mentor mm. recommended me for a position at a university. She thought I would be very good at a university position and that's how I ended up going to the university. I um now what we know about psychology is I've heard someone describe it as you know it's it's like for the white man and the further you get away from being a straight white man the less uh therapy becomes or the less it becomes something that like that people of color and black people can access when uh-huh. you do your work with 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 the black community did you uh-huh. find that you had to kind of tweak what you had learned in school to fit the because the experiences of black people are quite different in that there's not just that trauma but there's that ingrown generational trauma there's there's a lot of grief and loss did you find mm-hmm. that you had to kind of change the way that you were taught to fit this type of service you were providing absolutely so like you said uh, at that point with a master's degree there was only a few people that could attain that degree mm-hmm. and so a lot of them went to, to private practice because that's where you would make the money mm-hmm. So when I went into the community health services it was a relief to find out in my training that despite the fact that I was trained by white people they were 
woke white people. Mm. And they talked about how does trauma show up in black people? Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, I learned from a white doctor, psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. that he in his experience had found that a lot of black people, and when I say black people, I'm not talking about educated black people. I'm talking people from the rural areas Mm -hmm. who are coming to the community services. Mm -hmm. Don't understand the word or the concept of depression. They're not going to intellectualize it like a white person would. Mm-hmm. they instead complain about more somatic type symptoms. So they would come to Udgriha, which means doctor, and say they feel like there's ants crawling up and down their skin. Mm-hmm. And the more he heard this, the more he did research into it, he realized that for them, depression manifests in more somatic than cognitive ways. Mm-hmm. And so in our training, he shared this information so that we were aware that depending on race, you've got to really be cognizant of how things are. I remember also from my research study, I was working with young children, uh, something about their educational attainment. Mm -hmm. And going with my then supervisor, who was a white lady, and, you know, we're going to a rural area and we're going to do these tests with these kids. Mm -hmm. So, boom, we're going to show them colors. Hey, tell us what these colors are. These are kids. Of course, they know blue, orange, yellow. Mm -hmm. And they had never seen crayons, let alone talk about what colors are. Oh, wow. So we could have stopped there and said, wow, these kids are uh, way back with regards to IQ education. Mm-hmm. But because of her experience, she said, let's take them out into the field. Mm-hmm. Let's be in their environment. Mm-hmm. And suddenly she's taking out rocks and sticks and asking these kids to count them. And guess what? They could count them. Oh, so wow. very grateful for woke professors mm-hmm. who despite being white, understood that, you know, we're in Africa and we have to look at things from multiple perspectives. Mm. Now, Primrose, are you a Christian? I am. How do you reconcile your faith and and psychology? Because I think sometimes in our as Christians, which is kind, which I think is toxic, but there's always this idea that, you know, just pray, just pray about it, which a lot of our people do. Uh-huh. How do you reconcile those two things? Because I'm sure a lot of your clients at the time were coming and saying, you know what, God, will, you know, I lost like half my family, but, you know, God, God takes in God, whatever, whatever that saying is. Uh-huh. And they never really acknowledge that. Yes, as much as we're Christians, we, we still are Christians who experience trauma. Mm-hmm. How did yeah, you do that with your clients? Honestly, I end up telling people it's their personal choice mm-hmm. because I'm not going to force my opinions on you. Personally, I believe in the saying that God helps those who help themselves. Mm-hmm. So he's going to give me so much help, but the rest of it I need to figure out on my own. You know, he's given us brains to think. He's given us uh, people that are specialists in various areas Mm -hmm. so we can use them. If I break my back, am I just going to say, oh, I'm going to pray? No, I'm going to say, hey, let me go see a specialist and figure it out. And I think it should be the same when it comes to mental health. I'm not feeling well. Mm -hmm. I feel down. I feel blue. Mm -hmm. What do I do? I go see a doctor. I go see a psychologist, a therapist. Mm -hmm. So we have to push that narrative, normalize it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think then we can have 
churches and other religions come alongside us. I will say it's encouraging to see that uh, a number of churches are now talking about mental health. They have uh, services for blended families because they understand things are different for them. Mm-hmm. They will advertise their Christian therapists and encourage people to utilize them. So I think we've come a long way yes. in that regard. I I would agree with that. I think I'm I'm very impressed with the the progress that has been made and you know we're we're finally starting to you know acknowledge that mental health is a thing you can you can do two things at the same time you can believe in Jesus and also struggle with depression and anxiety and now let's let's i guess switch gears now you you moved to where did you move after you left south africa we moved to singapore mm-hmm. and what did you do in singapore so i taught uh they have what they call the open university which was the first uh distance a learning university in England and so they had a branch in Singapore so I worked there I taught and I also worked at an NGO for women that were abused mm-hmm. it was a very secretive NGO because in Singapore in those days it was taboo to talk about anything to do with domestic violence mm-hmm. so uh we were in the basement of a building and they would kind of secretly come in and secretly leave So that that I found very rewarding. Okay. What was it like working in Singapore? It was good. It was good. This was 2000 2001. They were open. There was hardly any black people so we were celebrities. They would ask us are you related to Michael Jackson? <laughs> yeah. And there so they always wanted to touch his hair because they have straight hair, we have curly hair. Mm-hmm. Uh and we we found uh, a great community of expatriates of Singaporeans and eventually like is always a case you eventually find your people. So mm-hmm. by the time we left a year later having got there without knowing a single soul mm-hmm. we had a humongous party and it was just a mishmash of different people. That's amazing. Um mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about you live in the US right now. Mm-hmm. And do you work as a professor or a counselor at the university? Or oh no. I, I I can only work yeah. So I in the states and now actually in Canada, you have to have a PhD in order to practice. And mm-hmm. in my last job in yeah, in Canada, I which was at a university with over 50,000 students, I just felt burnt out. So moving here I said you know what I don't think I want to counsel anymore let me see what else I can do in psychology so I ended up teaching at a, at a college uh but a year ago I was promoted so I'm now a director mm-hmm. not teaching as much but really working in the diversity equity and inclusion space That's amazing and and how does it feel to have a seat at the table because I feel like that's essentially what you have you're you're at the you're at the table sort of creating more accessible um either pathways to education or services So my college is in a rural area white predominantly white rural area Uh-oh yeah so this has been a labor of love mm-hmm. because what i talk about is something they have never really thought about a lot of them are christians so they say i don't see color 
I'm not, what else can I do? And so to help them understand why we need to do this and why they need to change Mm -hmm. is a process. And I've actually found that my experience as a psychologist has allowed me to be able to connect with these white people. Mm. Because in psychology, it's about building rapport. It's about building trust. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me who you are. Tell me what you think. Let's really get to know each other. I'm not going to force down your throat what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. I want to honor where you're at, where you've come from, and help prod you to an understanding that you have never really had. And so, like I say, it's been a labor of love, a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And I started this about four years ago. I am now at the point where we're changing policies, where we're developing inclusive curriculum, mm-hmm. where we have courageous conversations, where I have people come and present on Judaism and paganism. And mm-hmm. people actually attend these presentations because they're hungry to learn. Yeah. So... That has been my experience. That's a different um, narrative than, you know, for those of us who've never been to America, uh, when we hear a predominantly white city or or anything where there's there's a majority of white people, you kind of get worried. You're like, oh, my God, sounds like racism. But what mm-hmm. you're talking about is a different narrative, which is that these people are are willing to learn. That gives us like, or at least for me, it's it's a little bit of a ray of hope that we're uh-huh. moving in the, in the right direction. Now, you, as much as you are a director, as much as you're a, a teacher and a, a counselor, you are still a Black person. Uh-huh. And I'm curious, does it ever get exhausting being tasked with the the responsibility of of having to teach and have these conversations and being, I'm, I'm sure you, you get asked the weirdest questions and how do oh. you deal with that? That has always been a very interesting thing for me because honestly, personally, I don't mind that. Really? I really don't. Yes, I don't. Because I think it's so important to share my experiences, answer questions, help people look for information. Mm-hmm. That's me. Because I did not grow up here mm-hmm. and experience the microaggressions on a daily basis to the mm-hmm. point where I am tired. Mm-hmm. So I understand how black African-Americans feel being mm-hmm. constantly asked these questions and saying, but there's books out there. Go read the books. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the Internet there. Go find out the information on your own. They're tired. Yes. I'm not tired. I'm not tired. Another different perspective that I have not heard when I'm talking to other black people, they're like, leave me alone. But you're right. We've they've dealt with um, a lot of microaggressions. I, I know that I, I was in that space myself. There was a time when I was like, I, I don't want it's not my job. It's not my jo- job to teach white people. It's I didn't create racism. Your ancestors did type mentality. But as I'm getting older, you know, I'm I'm becoming more. Uh, open-minded I I recently my last question for you I recently watched a movie which if you have a minute you should watch it it's called black and white uh-huh. and it's it's about that that whole you know it basically it's in the name I won't ruin it for you but the person who was in the movie Anthony Mackie uh-huh. he 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 says he he said something really interesting to me that in terms of like 
you know, the issue of racism and racial tensions, black and white people have to have conversations with each other. And he talks about the fact that in this day and age, as you've seen, like white people are are not able to really come out and say a lot of things because Mm -hmm. they don't want the backlash and they don't want to be canceled. Right. What are your thoughts on... You know, I'll give you a story. Liam I, Liam Neeson, I don't know if you know him. He's an actor. Oh, yeah. He, he okay. told a story of... It was really weird, too, because it was unnecessary. <laughs> he was promoting uh-huh. a movie, and he, he said, like, you know, his friend came home and told him that she had been sexually assaulted. Uh-huh. And she went outside. I guess she told him she had been sexually assaulted by a black man. And he said uh-huh. he went all over the city to look for a black man so he could shoot him in the face. Uh-huh. He later on acknowledged that he understood the problem in what he did and that he he realized why that was problematic. And he, he even said, like, if, if that was a white man, I don't think I would have gone out because then I would have to shoot everybody on the street in uh-huh. either Ireland or Australia, whatever, wherever he's from. There was backlash. His movie f- like flopped. He, like it, it was like hellfire. Black Twitter was on was coming after him. And uh-huh. I guess I'm curious, do you think that there is a certain amount of of tolerance and uh, black and white people need to both sit at the table and have these conversations or do you think white people need to go off on their own and and learn what they need to learn and it's not black people's responsibility great question and one thing i've learned in this work is it doesn't have to be an either or Mm -hmm. it can be both and so i would say both and they can look up the information on their own it's great to part of the learning process is finding the information Mm-hmm. But it's also highly crucial that we have conversations. We sit down and we talk about the difficult stuff. So, for instance, at my college, I have had courageous conversations on systemic racism. Does it exist or not? Believe it or not, there's people. There was actually a professor on our college, actually two, that believed it doesn't exist. Oh. So, hey, come tell us your thoughts about it. And let's tell you why we think it exists. And let's hopefully learn something from one another. Right? Yeah. And so you you can do both. You don't have to choose one or the other. Oh, wow. I Well, I thank you for coming. That you've definitely given me a different perspective, one that I've, I've never heard, <laughs> you know, at least in my community. So I thank you for being here. Please do come back. Do you want, do you have anything that you want to add that we didn't cover? Maybe a Not shout really. out to our queens. Yes. I Well, definitely a shout out to you, Jay. Mm-hmm. Your questions were deep. And they really provided an opportunity for me to reflect. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just uh, close-ended questions. Mm-hmm. You took me back. You took me back. Really, what, what, what role did my parents play? Mm-hmm. How navigate this and that? So I thank you for... Going be beyond the surface. Yes. And uh, courageously doing so. Yes. And so I think this is such a great uh, program. I love that it's called Black Queens. Mm -hmm. And I wish you the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. I definitely think this is a conversation that, you know, has to continue. I love that there's there's Black women like yourself in the education system who are, you know, 
creating different different narratives and just uh, being that face of representation as someone who's gone to university. I, I didn't. I know that representation is not a thing. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm I'm always so excited when I hear that a black woman is in the schools because I know that will inspire somebody. And Absolutely. please come back. I will. I'd love to. Thank you for coming back, ladies. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Black Queens Republic. Follow me, your host, JJ, on Instagram at J-A-E underscore J-A-Y-E. Would you like to be featured on the podcast? Send me a DM. I would love to hear your perspective. I would love to hear your views on the world. And guess what? You get a free customized hoodie from Black Queens Republic when you feature on the podcast. Be sure to send us an email let us know what you think of the podcast what would you like to hear be discussed on here at blackqueensrepublic at gmail.com make sure you share this podcast with your friends and your family this podcast is available on every single platform so look for us you can google us at blackqueensrepublic i look forward to chatting with you in two weeks ciao